Doing church? All right, we're a lively crew today. So we're doing things a little bit different, like where is there not someone up here doing announcements? This is weird, you've moved my cheese. It's okay. It's going to be great. Everything's going to work out at the end of the day. We don't have a lot of announcements. That's what's going on this morning, which is why we didn't need to do <laughs> Oh, Bill would be so sad if he heard that. <laughs> Here's what I want to do, though. I want to do something a little bit different. Um, you guys have been so good at being a praying church. And when we ask you to pray, we have found time and time again, you guys just pray and there's some awesome prayers. And so our youth is going to camp on Tuesday. And yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And so uh, our, our new guy, Justin Whitkoff, has been here and he has been doing a great job of leading the group. What? Did I say it wrong? Oh my, I said it right. I mean, I know your last name, I swear. <laughs> and so Justin has been leading the group. He's been doing all these activities, and he's been doing a phenomenal job. If you haven't got a chance to meet Justin, go meet Justin. Talk to him. Make him buy you coffee. You should totally have him do that for you. He would love to do that. But he's going up to his first camp where he's in charge, and we are so excited for him. So here's what I want to do. I want to take just a few minutes. And I want us just to pray for the youth. For me, and maybe for you who've experienced this, youth camp was one of those times where I made some massive decisions in my life. It's where I started, like the trajectory of my life really played out. It's where I first started understanding repenting of sin and what God's word meant and what it meant to sing with peers to Jesus. And I, I mean, I started making the decisions that I wanted to be a pastor at those camps at some point. So uh, if we can just take a few minutes, pray out loud, pray quietly, however you want to, and then I'll go ahead and close in a few minutes. So someone go ahead and fire it off, you know, no big deal.
Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. I thank you for the youth that we have here. Um, I thank you for Justin, that you called him here to be watching over them, to guide them, to instruct them, to teach them. I ask that as they go, that they would have an encounter with you, that they would have conversations with you, that they would have interactions with you, and they would come to know you more and more and worship you more fully. Thank you for this time. I pray that you take them there safely and bring them back safely. For these things in your glorious and amazing name, amen. I'm not going to lie. I could have listened to you guys pray for like a, the whole sermon. I could have been like, you know, there's no sermon today. We just took care of it. That was fantastic. Thank you. Um, as I was praying over the message this week, uh, I kept coming back to the big idea of faith and what it is. And, and as I started thinking about faith more and more, I started thinking, you know, we exercise faith all the time. As a matter of fact, we exercise faith all day long, hundreds of times a day, and we don't even realize it, and it's subconscious half the time. I mean, think about it. You went to your garage or your carport, and you got in your car, and you turned the key, and you had faith that it would start. If you're in college, it's 50-50. You just never know if it's going to work out. Okay, and so you got on the road and, and you had faith that that little yellow line was going to keep the other car from not crossing over into your path. We have faith when we get into a small cylinder tube and fly hundreds of miles per hour, thousands of feet in the air that it's going to land safely and get us to our destination. This morning you walked in this room and you had faith that that chair that you're sitting in would literally hold you up. Not many of you are like, well, let me check the structural integrity of this thing and make sure that it has what it... No, none of you. You, just, you had faith. This is a chair. It's going to do the thing. And then in that moment, you sat in there and you surrendered your power. You surrendered your ability and you rested in that chair having faith that it would do that. And you may ask, why are we talking about faith? Because that's exactly what we're talking about this morning. We are going to look at an individual that Jesus would say had some of the, the largest faith that he had seen in all of Israel. And he's going to talk about what that looks like. He's going to talk about what salvation looks like, where it comes from, and where it rests in. And we're going to talk about authority as well. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, you can follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible. If you're new and you don't have a Bible at all, and you, we'd love for you to take one in the, in the bottom of the seats. You can grab one there. There's some in the back. Our gift to you, please take it. We just want you to read it and know God's Word. We're going to start in chapter 5 and go through 13, and that's going to be our text for this morning. When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, the centurion, uh, and to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's go ahead and pray. 
Lord, I thank you for this text. Uh, as I've just been studying it and going through it, it's been an encouragement to me. It's been a blessing to me. Lord, I ask that that would be the same for those here this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me in a way that would be a conduit for your truth, for your love. Lord, that I would make little of myself and much of you. If there are things written down that are, are going to be a distraction to those here this morning, just take them away from my notes, take them from my mouth, take them from my mind. Let me trust that you are going to do the work that you always do, that you would go before me and that you would start to prepare the hearts of the men and women here this morning. Love you. Pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Now, this is a great section of Scripture. that We also can find this in Luke chapter 7, 1 through 5. It's got some other details in there. If you want to study that later, uh, that'd be a great thing to go ahead and do. Uh, this Scripture, if we're looking at the timeline of what's going on, we've had the birth of Christ, we've had um, the temptation, uh, we've, we've done the Sermon on the Mount at this point. He's coming off the Mount after having the Sermon, and it's on the tail ends of just healing a leper and cleansing him. So that's kind of where we find ourselves in the story. It's relatively early in the ministry of Christ and what he's doing. And he enters this town called Capernaum. Now, it's one of those areas that Jesus would spend a lot of time coming in and out of. It was kind of like a hub for his ministry as he would come and go. If you're not familiar with where Capernaum is, if it's uh, the northern tip of, of Israel. You've got the Sea of Galilee up here, and then that pours into the Jordan River, which then ultimately dumps into the Dead Sea, and then Jerusalem's right down here. And so he was up there, and he would come in and out. We find that that's where Simon Peter he lived, he had a family, he had a wife, he had a mother-in-law. He actually, Jesus heals the mother-in-law in the next section of, of Scripture. And uh, that's where they kind of spent their time. And as he was going through there, we find that a centurion comes up to him. And he wants to have a conversation with him. And a centurion is a Roman soldier is who it was. Now, one of the things that we need to understand that's kind of a glaring thing that we should be like, why is this important to us, is right off the bat, this man would not have been a Jew. He wasn't a Jewish man. He was a Roman soldier. So we talked about last week that they had Jewish people doing the taxes and they were helping out with that and not really helping, helping themselves really more than anything. But that the Roman soldiers were the citizens of Rome. That's who was in there. He would have had around a hundred individuals underneath him and he would have authority over them. He was a well-known man. He was a respected man. He was a powerful man. We find from Luke that he was well-known in the community that he actually helped build the synagogue that was there in Capernaum. We find that uh, people would have uh, very good things to say about him. So he knew enough about the Jewish people. He knew enough about that area. He knew what was going on in that area. And so he would be known as a Gentile, the Bible would say, just a non-Jewish person outside of the promise of God. So why would he come to Jesus? What was so important that he needed to go to Jesus to have this conversation with him? Well, what we find is that he has a servant. Now, this servant's paralyzed. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if it was recent. We don't know if it was long-term. We don't know how long this was going on. But we do know that this individual was paralyzed and that he was suffering. And Luke, it says that he was at the point of death. It was getting desperate for this servant. And what we learn is something about this particular centurion is that he actually cared for his servant. He had some kind of love and respect and affection for him that he was willing to go and find help to get him healed. Now I would imagine that he probably at some point had exhausted his resources and his funds to try to do that with the physicians of that day and of that age. But clearly it wasn't working out. And so he goes and he's like, hey, 
I need somebody to help me. So he goes to Jesus. And he says that he appeals to him. That word appeal could actually be uh, looked at as pleading or begging. He went to a state, the, the man that was over this group of people, the one who was in charge of them, kind of like the chief of police, if you will, is now going to the people that he has underneath him asking for help. And Jesus says really clearly in verse 7, I will come and heal him. That Jesus has a heart for those that are hurting, a heart for those that are lost, a heart for those that are broken, and will always go to those that call and ask for help. Do you hear anything? Hear that. Just sit in that. That's who our Savior is. Now the response that the centurion gives is so profound and it's so unique to anything else we've seen. It says this in verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. His response is telling. And it's telling because I believe that he understands who Jesus is. Any good person who is overseeing, any police officer knows what's happening in their area, don't they? They know the ins and the outs. They know who the bad crowd is. They know who the good crowd is. They know the crowd who they don't know yet that they got to figure out. They know the events that are taking place. He had heard of this Jesus. He had heard that there was this guy going around doing things that no one else was doing. He was performing miracles. He was teaching in such a way that no one had ever heard. He was starting to draw these crowds in that no one had ever seen these kinds of crowds before. And he's doing these powerful healing miracles. They're like, what is going on here? This guy is different. And he's healing people by speaking. He's not going to them like a doctor, like, well, let me you know, eat this or take this and let me bandage it. No. He's just saying stuff and people are healed. And that idea starts to resonate with him. Because he also, we also understand that there's a great deal of humility for him to go towards him. To put himself under that. He didn't see himself as an equal to Jesus. He saw Jesus as superior to him. He says it. I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. It's, it's interesting. So, this seems to be the common theme when Jesus interacts with people, isn't it? Jesus lived a perfect life. He was sinless. He completely followed God in everything he did, everything he said, every way that he thought. It, as I thought about that this week, it, it, it highlights things in your life, doesn't it? So I, I try to be a golfer. I pretend like I am. I have all the stuff. I dress the right way, but I don't have the score that reflects that I'm a golfer that's good. But I enjoy it still. It's okay. I, I enjoy doing it. But there's something that happens when you go golfing with someone who's really, really good. It highlights one thing and one thing only. That you are really, really bad. No matter how hard you try, that person's like, oh, I'm on in two. Oh, I missed that putt and only got a two putt. I'm like, I got a four putt. Like, give me a break. This is ridiculous. And when people were in the presence of Jesus, they felt that same thing. That they saw how holy and righteous he was, and not in a condescending, condemning way. They saw it for what it was. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. And this man understands that. I'm not worthy to have you come to me. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm unrighteous. You shouldn't be there. 
This is the same attitude that John the Baptist had when he was talking about there's one coming greater than I, right? He says, I'm unfit to even untie his sandal. This demeaning, lowly position to touch the feet of another individual. John got it. The centurion got it. And he said, I believe if you say the word, my servant will be healed. Now, I believe, as I was reading this, it reminded me of one part of text in Scripture that I thought was like, this really reminds me of something in Scripture. It reminds me of Genesis 1, when God creates everything. And there's this statement that's done seven times in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be land. What's he doing? He is speaking into existence that just with the words of his mouth, he has the ability to create and make life. I believe that this centurion was around enough Jewish people that he had heard and known what was going on that he was like, this is exactly the kind of power that God has. That he's speaking things with a supernatural power that no one else has. And he's going to explain why he understands what's going on in verse 9. He says this in verse 9. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he's understanding that there's some kind of authority. He's saying, I am a man under authority. Why would he say I'm under authority and I'm not a man in authority? You ever wonder that? See, he is... The only authority that he has is the authority that's been given to him by his superiors. He doesn't have any authority in and of himself. It's because the generals and the commanders said, do this. And so that authority has been extended to him. And when he says, go do this, he has the full backing of the Roman army behind him saying, you will do this or, and the or is always bad, but if you don't do it, the or is bad. You just do it. So he understands that I'm under authority, and that's what gives me the ability to have authority. So what he is saying is that God has given you this authority, and you are speaking in a way which commands people to do things. But it's funny because he's like, I have authority over humans, just some, some Roman guards. But he's like, but your authority is over spiritual things, over the physical realm and the spiritual world. Like, it's a power that I could never even understand or comprehend whatsoever. He gets it. He's saying, you say the word. He's healed like that. No lag time. It's, it'll be done. He believes that Jesus has that ability. He has that power. He's been given authority by God. And I love the response from Jesus in verse 10. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The word marveled is actually pretty interesting. It's, it's, uh, one would say, if, if you took the, the original word and broke it down, it's more like astonished or amazed. And oddly enough, that's only used with Jesus twice. In all of his ministry, it's only used twice. So we see once it's here, as he sees the centurion who understands who he is, that he has power, that he has authority, that he is commanding things that no one else can command, and he believes that his word alone can heal his servant. He's like, he is, he's marveled at it. He's like, this is crazy. And then he, he does the same thing but in the opposite side of the coin in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. 
This is after Jesus uh, went back to his hometown. He was teaching, he was healing some people, and he's around all the people that he grew up with. And I don't know if you've ever gone back to your hometown and, you know, you can't put on a, a dog and pony show in front of people that actually know your history. I was just with a bunch of my high school friends. They don't let anything slide. They know everything about me, and they remind me every day of what a failure I am. It's good. We need that. But this is what we find as he goes to preach and teach. And verse 6 says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he went to go heal some more people. It's crazy that these men and women who grew up with Jesus, who knew the stories, who saw him, he comes and starts healing in his hometown. They couldn't, they couldn't uh, get the category in their mind for that. They had preconceived notions about who Jesus was, where he came from, who his mom and dad were, and all that was going on with that. They just wouldn't believe. As a matter of fact, they took offense to him. And he's like, okay. He's like, I'm going to go heal a bunch of people. and be on my, I mean, they just couldn't get past it. They couldn't get past this fact. And so Jesus is going to take this, this event, and he's going to teach about faith. He's going to say some things about how it regards to salvation. And then he's going to press against them about how they think that they're saved and how you truly are saved. And verses 11 through 12 say this. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. And there's a contrast. He says that because there's a contrast of those that are around. There are Israelites around. He's saying, here's the deal. Out of all the people that should know who I am, it should be the Israelites. You've read the scrolls, you've, you've gone to the synagogues, you've heard the teachings, you've read through the prophecies, you know who the Messiah, where he's going to come from, what line he's going to come from. You're going to know all this stuff. If anyone should know who this Jesus is, it should be you. You should be the ones that should actually know who I am because you've studied all of this stuff. But yet what we find is it's this guy who's on the outside who understands who he is. He's like, I get it. I understand. It's, it's so interesting. As Jesus responds and presses in, like they knew about Jesus. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, they knew. How do I know? Because it starts talking about it over and over again. In Mark 1, uh, 22, where'd it go? And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. What he's saying is he taught in such a way, not as someone who understood the text, but as someone who wrote the text. You teach in a way as though you actually created it. I mean, that's the best person to talk to. If you want to talk to someone who has written something really profound, like, you don't want to just read it. You want to talk to the guy who wrote it, like, Teach me what this means. Help me understand. If you've been in college, the, pre the prof that wrote the book is the one who knows the material best, right? That's who you want to get the information from. And that's how they saw him. We saw with Nicodemus a few weeks ago in Luke 3 that he said, 
we know that you've been sent from God because no one can do these things unless God has given the ability to do it. They understood. And then in Mark chapter 11, in verse 27, it says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. They said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? So it's not like they didn't see it. It's not like they didn't recognize that there was something going on in Jesus. They, they saw like, it's clear that you're in charge in some way, shape, or form. And we don't understand how you are. The difference is they wouldn't acknowledge the authority that he had and submit to it. Because that's the problem. If they truly believe and they truly understand, it meant that they would have to be under Jesus and submit to Jesus. They didn't want to. They liked what they were doing. They liked being in charge of their lives. They liked being the ones that were doing all the righteous things because uh, now God's happy with me. Now God loves me. That's where they were. And so they wouldn't submit to him. They wouldn't be under his authority. And it's, and it's funny. At times with all of our knowledge, it can blind us to the very thing that's right in front of us, can't it? We can have an IQ way above our pay grade. We don't realize that we're missing the very thing. It's right in front of our face. And sometimes we just need to plainly look at what's happening in front of us. And we can see it as clear as the centurion. The problem is with this, is we want God to fit our narrative. We don't want to fit in God's narrative. So we want to be in charge so he'll be how we want him to be. To do what we want him to do. But if he is truly the Lord of your life, you will do what he says and you'll fall into that. Now as I was studying this, it's interesting, so... As Jesus is talking with Centurion, he, he goes and he heals the man right away. The man's healed. I mean, he says, go ahead, healed, done. He's better right now. And they said instantly he was healed. Amazing. Did this crazy miracle. But he doesn't talk about salvation. I was like, oh, well, this is just a, a, a picture of what God is doing and what he can do for everyone else. And then I started studying it more. And then I disagreed with myself. I said, self, you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. Because I believe that this man came to a place of salvation. And here's why. This event takes place, and he, he has this great faith in who Jesus is, this great faith in acknowledging his authority and his power and come from God. And then he goes in this huge story about the East and the West and who's being saved and who's going to be there and who isn't. Why would he do that unless this man was going to be saved? See, Jesus is the one that heals and saves. And this man understood that. And he put his faith in Christ to heal and save his servant. And I believe he put it in his life as well. Now this is early in the ministry of Christ. We have to remember that. And so he's, Jesus is hinting at the bigger thing that Jesus is going to do. The thing that was promised all the way back in Genesis 12. That he's going to bless the entire earth through his, these people. Yes, he came for the Jewish people. But he's saying that there's a bigger picture and my power is greater than just the Jewish people, that I'm going to span my love, my power over all people. And this statement about coming from the east and the west, what he's really saying is that he's going to see all these Gentiles, the centurion, come and be a part of the kingdom of God. 
See, these non-Jews coming to be a part of the kingdom of God would have been a really hard thing to understand. They wouldn't have had a compartment for that. See, the Jewish people like, this is relocated just for us. This is our thing. And there was this huge divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. They wouldn't even eat with them because they were unclean. It was going to make them unclean if they ate with them. So they would never even eat with them. That there was this intimacy that comes from eating and dining with God, that you were a part of the family. I mean, think about it. When you invite someone to your house, you're letting them into your life. You're letting them into like, like your home should be your safe place. It's where you can relax. It's where you can be yourself. And you're letting people into that. You're going to show them what you have and where you are. You're going to let them sit with you. You're going to eat with them. You're going to converse. And that's what he's talking about at reclining at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the lineage side of what he's talking about with Israel. So this idea of reclining at the table with Abraham, they would, have, they would have had the vision of the messianic banquet, the rule and reign of God over all people and all things forever, that this Messiah was going to come and bring this to be. But they're like, that's for us. We're those people. Not them. And Jesus says, it's going to be really hard when you're at that table. Because you're going to see a lot of Gentiles there. And they're going to be eating with the king as well. And we will be one family. And then he takes it a step further. And this is the hard, the hard stuff that he's going to get into. He says, many of the sons of the kingdom, who are the sons of the kingdom? The Israelites will not be at that table. It says that they will be in outer darkness. Meaning they will not be with God. They will be separated from the light. Remember it says that God is love and God is light, right? The glory of God. You won't be with that. And there will be this weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you're like, what does that mean? Weeping and gnashing of teeth is the idea of pain and punishment and suffering. You're like, I don't know what gnashing is. Next time you're walking in your house in the middle of the night to get a drink of water and you kick the door frame, you know what I'm talking about? You go, ah! gnashing. That's gnashing of teeth. <laughs> that is the gnashing that we're talking about, that there is this anguish and pain and you sit in that and you are not connected to that which brings life, that there is a separation and what Jesus is, is telling them, well, let me put it this way. So you're like, well, wait, that's Israel. They're the promised people of God, right? It's similar to this idea that I heard for a long time. I don't know if it exists so much anymore, but maybe it does. I think it used to. This idea of like, well, I live in America, and it was kind of rooted in Christian values, and a lot of the documentation was written by a bunch of Christians, and so therefore it's a Christian nation. So therefore, I have a whole pass with God because I'm an American. Saved. Now, that's not a really popular thought now, but that, is, that was a thought for a, a long time. We're a Christian nation, and God loves us. So because I'm an American, I'm saved. It's the same kind of idea. The Jews have the same thoughts. It's, not, it's nothing new. We're not, we're not new on the block here. This is, this is what it is. And what Jesus is telling everybody is this. Faith is the key to entering the kingdom of God. And it is a very specific faith. And that faith is faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to experience the power of Jesus and forgiveness of sins, which allows us to be in his presence, is to have faith in Jesus Christ. And it's to be under his authority. Humbly submitting to him. See, this is, this is 
giving up our life and surrendering our life, the life that led us nowhere but from separation from God. To be under his authority means that we believe him, we trust him, and we follow him. You may be like, why do you keep always saying that we should live like this? And we should I'm not telling you anything. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That to be under the authority of God means to listen to God, to submit to God. If we say with our mouth that we believe that Jesus is our Lord, then why would we do the opposite of that? We have to be under his authority. He is our authority. He is our protection. If we are in him, if we have placed our life in his life, he is our Lord. He is our King. He is our God. As I was studying this week, I was reading Charles Spurgeon. And if you don't know much about the church, that means nothing to you. Um, but he was a really, really famous um, preacher. They actually called him the Prince of the Pulpit. He was so good. Well, that's a great name. That'd be a great nickname to have. I do not have it. I'm like the popper of the pulpit. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's, maybe that's what I am. But he was known as the Prince of the Pulpit. And most uh, pastors at some point will, will quote Spurgeon. He just wrote so much and said so many profound things. But then I was reading this week in Spurgeon, and he was quoting other people. Like, well, who's the guy that everyone quotes quoting? Because that's what I want to know. Well, he quotes the Puritans quite a bit. And he, he said this about the Puritans, that they would write one sentence, and it was so deep and so rich that it would take him pages to get to the same level of richness and understanding of the Lord that he would. And he's all, and if they wrote a paper, one page, it would take me books to expand on all that they said. And, and he was talking through this as he was talking about the idea of what it meant to have faith. And so the Puritans wrote down those, these three areas that we, we need to have when it comes to having faith in God. And so as I was kind of going down that, this would be a good thing to maybe share for us. And, and I think that we see this play out in the life of the centurion and where he came to in his life. One, we need to have a need for God. The Puritans say that we have to have a knowledge of God. I think that really is they're talking about you have to acknowledge that we need God, that we can't, that we don't have the ability, that we are in need, and he is the one that can actually provide the means for what we desire, which is forgiveness of sins, rejection of shame and guilt and suffering, knowing that it doesn't lead to a perfect life and that that would be separated from God, that we need God in some way, shape, or form. We must believe what God's word says about his son, Jesus Christ. We have to understand that we come to a place where we agree with the truth of Jesus being the son of God. Come to live a perfect life. To take our wrath that we deserve, that he absorbed, that he went to the cross, that he died in our place. Didn't die for his sins. Died for our sins. And that he took that. And he, and he, he then gives us his righteousness. So we can be right with God for those that have placed their life in his life. But there comes this other part that we have to take hold of it, that I like to use the term to rest in it. We have to rest in that faith. And, and, and here's what I mean, that our faith is placed in him. Very similar to what I was talking about the chairs. There comes a point with anyone who really has faith in a chair has to give up their power to stand on their own, to hold their own weight. And they allow the chair to hold the weight that they can't hold. And so our action of taking hold is actually not our action at all. Our action is not having action. Our action is trusting in the actions of Jesus Christ as the one who lived the life that we couldn't live. Who met God's requirement. Who gives us his righteousness. There's this funny 
picture that I was thinking of this uh, weekend, and maybe you know the movie, maybe you don't. I, I think most of us do, but it's uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? He goes, and his dad's hurt, and he's like, I gotta get the cup of Christ. So he's gonna get the cup of Christ that caught the blood of Jesus, and so he goes to this place, and he has all these clues that allow him to get through all the little things to get there, and he comes to this one really narrow corridor, and says, only a leap from the lion's hand, head will get you there. And he's standing there, and he's looking across this really huge chasm and a huge pit. And on the other side is going to be the thing that brings hope and salvation to his dad to save him. But yet he's sitting here. He understands that he's like, I got to get there. There's a need. My dad has a need. And he has to agree with the fact that I have to leap from this lion's head. The problem is there's a big cavernous pit in front of him. That he has to believe and he has to give up his ability and his knowledge and understanding of what it means to get across. And he has to trust that God is going to do it. Now it doesn't matter if we understand that when he steps out in faith there's an actual ledge there. And it's just camouflage. It doesn't matter. He still had to believe and trust. And that's what we're called to do. To believe and trust and to rest in the work of God and not to rest in our own ability. When it comes to being a part of the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us that it can only come through faith in him and him alone. We see that with the, with the centurion. He had faith in Jesus being the healer, being the savior that would do that. It's not going to come from our heritage. It's not going to come from our bloodline or our, pre, our pedigree. It will come from when you say and understand that Jesus has true authority in your life. In this world and the next I don't know where all of us are. But I do know this as I talk with people that people are broken and people are hurting. And there's areas in our life where we're not giving Jesus authority. We're not allowing him to guide us and to lead us to where would be best for us. And we say, no, I want to be in charge. I want to make decisions for my life. I know what's best. And God loves you enough to say, no, you don't. I've made everything. I know how everything works. I know exactly how this world's supposed to function. And you thinking this decision is good for you isn't good for you. That's why it says, don't do this. And this is why I do want you to do this. It's not so he'll love us if we do that. He just wants us to submit and be obedient and trust him. To have faith like the centurion. And, I, and maybe there's a spot in your life where you just need to do that today. Like, I need to trust God's authority. I need to submit to him. I need to believe that this is the right way to live the life that he's called me to live. And if that's you today, I would just say repent and say, God, I need to trust you. And then tell him what that thing is and lay that at the foot of the cross and let it be done. And it might be for some of you that you've never even gotten to that point. <laughs> you're like, I don't know about this Jesus guy. And maybe you've been listening to the series as we've been going along about these conversations and what we can see over and over again is that Jesus loves people, that Jesus cares for people, and he knows that we can't save ourselves, so he did it for us. And anyone who would place their life in the life of Christ will be saved. That's the promise. That's the hope that we have. That's what our faith is in. My question today is, what are you going to do? Are you going to submit to his authority or somebody else's? What will you do? I'm going to go ahead and pray. And we're going to move into our time of communion. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to, to come and be under your word. Lord, I know that there's so much hurt and brokenness in this room. 
Lord, I ask that you would bring to light areas where we're not surrendering to your authority. Areas we're not trusting you, we're not following you, we're not believing you. That we would believe in faith that you are right. Lord, for those that have never met you, I ask that today would be the day that they would come to a place of putting their trust in, in what you've done, Jesus, your perfect life, so they can have a relationship with God. They would lay their sins at the foot of the cross knowing they've been forgiven, knowing, Jesus, that you are the one that heals and saves to all that call out on you. Lord, I ask that they would come to know that they have a need for you, a deep separation and brokenness, the same way the centurion did, that he was not worthy to come to you, that they would agree with the fact that you, Jesus, are God incarnate, come to live amongst us to save your people, and that we would rest in the salvation that you offer. Lord, as we move into communion, let us reflect on those things and think about those things. We love you. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.